Welcome to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Welcome to another episode of Something for the Turbo. We hope you're having a good week and all is well. If you are enjoying the show and haven't yet subscribed, please make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review if you can and pass the pod tell all your cycling friends as well and if you aren't part of the global cycling community on the hub yet please make sure you download the unfound app it's available on the app store or google play and join the global community we look forward to seeing you on there now today i've gone a little bit joe rogan on you it's definitely a long episode but my word when you have an esteemed guest like brian smith joining you trust me there is a lot to talk about we discuss brian's professional cycling career becoming british champion twice racing the giro in a in a murky epo era we also discuss his career in team management managing some of the largest teams in the world and the biggest names in cycling and of course commentating and broadcasting and becoming one of the most distinguished voices in commentary with eurosport it's a fantastic discussion we discuss all this and plus lots lots more i really enjoyed it Hi, Brian. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you getting on? Um, all good, considering uh, the last few months. It's um, been a difficult period for me, um, not having any work, which as anybody uh, that works, they're always moaning about it and wanting to retire. But I get a little bit of a, a buzz out doing uh, comms. Um, so I didn't think I'd miss it so much, but I am. I, I miss that that kind of buzz you get from commentating with uh, your commentator next to you, the buzz of the race. And, you know, just recently I've been watching a little bit, or I've been trying to watch some of the, the Burgess race. And you kind of miss that, the the unpredictability about uh, cycling, I miss. But on the, on the flip side, uh, I recently lost my, my mother. Um, she had terminal cancer diagnosis at the end of last year. So I knew it was coming. But um, yeah, you're never you're never ready for it. Um, so it's been it's been a, an up and down period. Um, but I'm doing what my you know, I'm trying to keep. You know, there's a saying that goes through my head. You know, keep on making your mum proud. Uh, someone said that to me, and I'm going to continue to do that. She, I filled her front room uh, every time uh, I, I was on Eurosport. I filled her front room, and so. Uh, I want to uh, try and continue doing that. Yeah, well, she was a she was a cycling lover. I mean, maybe that's a good place to start. You you, you came from a family of cycling lovers, didn't you? Yes, I did. I was quite fortunate. My mum and dad were in the, the Johnston Wheelers. My mum and dad actually met uh, through the the Johnston Wheelers. I'm an honorary member of that club, and they used to go away to Italy uh, for a month at a time on holiday, and both of them fell in love with the country. Um, you know, at one stage, you know, to go over there, the, the, it wasn't flights or anything like that. I think there was four over six foot tall um, lads went over there. My mum was five foot two. She went over with them and they used to go on these kind of cycling holidays. And, you know, I remember, you know, what, um, you know, hearing about my mum and dad talk about it. Uh, and, you know, quite recently when I was up in Scotland, you drag out the old photo albums and kind of reminisce. And, you know, it was, yeah. they, had, they had some really good times. And, you know, when I was younger, when I, my, I first started cycling, Cycling. I was a, I was kind of forced into it a little bit. I was a footballer. Uh, my brother was under sixteen Scottish schoolboy champion. Um, my, I've got a twin sister. Can I rode the bike a little bit just for more for leisure than yeah. anything else? And I remember one Christmas asking for a pair of football boots. You know, got excited when I saw the box open up the box and it was a pair of cycling shoes. And you know, I say this when I I, I do um, talks and um, you know after dinner speaking and things like that. That I don't know if anybody in the room has ever played football with cycling shoes it, it doesn't really kind of work so Aye. so I, I thought to, to honour my dad uh, I decided that uh, I'd give cycling a go and I can remember racing around Glasgow Green and 
it was just it was too hard. I stopped and my brother was there with his friends and we say in Glasgow, slagged me off, you know, gave me a ribbing, you know, told me I was rubbish and things like that. And I just thought to myself, I'll show you. And I, I don't know if that's my nature um, throughout my life that, you know, I, anybody that puts me down, I'll, I'll always want to show them uh, what I can do. And, you know, I would yeah, I, start the determination, right? And, and yeah. the, uh, the underdog, I suppose. But so out of all the family, you, you were the one that didn't instantly fall in love with, with cycling, I suppose. No, I didn't. I didn't fall in love with it at all um it was yeah. kind of forced a bit on me and you know i had to prove something i've got two young lads as well now um both of them uh i've gone through the kind of go ride i live kind of bromley area uh, southeast uh, london kind of north kent and they've gone through the the process they can both ride the bike uh, my eldest is i would say gifted you can always tell when you go out in a group or even at five years old when he went out when he gets out the saddle you can always tell someone's at one with the bike and yeah I could see that he he had style. He, I'm not going to say talent because it kind of came naturally for him. He, he never really kind of trained too hard, and and then we'd go down to the cycle park or, or out to Hern Hill, and he'd he'd race with some of the, the the young riders of his age. And you know he wasn't always winning, but he always gave his best. But now my youngest is into football. My eldest is into rugby. Uh, he plays um, for Becca Hamians down here, which is a quite a respected um, rugby club. Uh, he plays last year under 12s and he got players player of the year. Um, so he's doing really well and he still get both of them still get time. But I don't think I'm going to push them the way my dad did. Um, yeah. The kind of subtle hints. That I'm going to let them find their way. If they choose cycling, then I've got full respect for, you know, all the fathers out there that have got top riders in the peloton because I know what it's like in the peloton. I know what it's like to be a, a cyclist. I know how hard and I know how disciplined they have to be. And I don't want to interfere. It's good a lot to, for me to go along on a Monday and a Wednesday night in rugby training and, and just sit back I just sit back and, and let the coaches do do their thing I don't interfere don't get involved and I think that if that was cycling I'd maybe want to get too involved uh, and I'd get too stressed about it so yeah they're enjoying their sport at the moment I'm not going to pressurise them into cycling but for me cycling was something I did to, to please my dad and one of the first few races I rode that year uh, was the Scottish Schoolboy Championships and uh, I managed to get second in it and then all of a sudden um Someone was there from Scottish Cycling saying that you now qualify to ride the British Championship, and I'm going. What's the British Championship? I I I, I couldn't comprehend. We're down to the the bull ring in in Birmingham with the top under 16s in the country. I was only 14 at the time, and there's a there's a massive gulf between a 15 year old and a 14 year old, and I think I finished about 17th and get absolutely battered. But th- there was something in there that I decided that I want to keep at it. I want to keep going. Um, I want to see how good I can get as long as I can improve every year. And well, I managed- that's where the the switch clicked for you in terms of doing it to to please your dad, and then actually the intrinsic motivation to wanting to see how good you could be yourself. I think it was a, a part of that. It, it, I was talking to one of the rugby coaches who was going on about his son. That there's no competitive spirit in his son. Well, he sees my lad, and you know when I'm there, he tries that harder. He sprints that much more you can see he's putting the effort in and it's something that you can't put into someone either you've got that that competitive spirit or you don't and there's, there's no yeah. point forcing it and I, w- I just said to him look you know he's one of the coaches he wants and I can imagine what conversations they have at home and um, being a coach of the the rugby team his son doesn't want to do anything he'll go along to the, the the training just to be with his friends for something to do um 
and he's not progressing. And I can imagine his dad trying to kind of push him like my dad did. And and he either wants to do it or not. And there, there comes a time where he might want to do it. Something might click. He might get some motivation from somewhere. But at the moment, you cannot force someone. It has to come within. Yeah. And I don't think my dad pushed me. I think it was my, more my brother and his, his friends kind of gave me a hard time, told me yeah. that I was rubbish. And There's more, I'll show you, big brother. Yeah, something like yeah. that. And I think it's yeah. I think it's something that's it's it's went throughout my life that if someone if you read anything in social media or anything making comment or you know commentary you're rubbish and all that, it just I'll I'll show you I'll show you what I can do. I can remember even in commentary I was told that you know by ITV if I didn't if I didn't because I wanted to try and work in the Tour de France because I hadn't done the Tour de France I couldn't I couldn't work in the Tour de France and you know proving them wrong so I think throughout my my career from cycling to to commentary and even to team management I've always um proven that you know you can do things um you don't always need to have that uh, top experience and you know you can still do things at the uh, top of the sport well, i think you're being overly modest uh, in terms of you don't need to have that top experience i mean you, you've had three distinguished careers at the top level in, in three different areas obviously as, as a racer in team management and now one of the most recognized voices in in the sport start start with the racing side i mean tell us about your your racing career i mean you raced the Giro twice British national champion Olympian that that doesn't seem too modest to me no, I had a decent career but nine years in, in, in total I turned professional when I was uh, in 1991 um, yeah. in, in the UK but turning the clock back a little bit you know I was thrown in at the deep ends you know I went to the junior world uh, that's under 18 and you know I was second in the British Championships to, to Dave Rayner and that gave me okay. a taste of, of what cycling was about you know I got my bike stolen the night before the the race and had to borrow one of the track riders uh, bikes which didn't kind of help I was involved with a crash in the first lap and but I finished I finished the race and that's what I went to do uh, I wanted to go and finish the race Mario Cipollini finished fourth he went on to win quite a few races in his career so what everybody yeah everybody develops at, at, at different levels and and then I turned senior. There was no under twenty three, so there's no kind of buffer thrown in at the deep end. And you know the the Scottish cycling team manager never selected me for the the Girvan three day in any of the Scottish teams. There was two. Uh, I never got selected. Um, I think he thought I wasn't good enough. Although some of the lads said that in training that you know I'd showed the potential and I should have been in one of the teams. So you know again it's one of these things where I went there to to show them what I could do and I, I finished there was only one of the Scottish team members finished in, in front of me. I think I finished tenth overall. Uh, and then after that uh, I went on a kind of winning spree in 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 Scotland, winning some of the kind of classic races like Glasgow Dunoon. And you know the following day, Dave, and I, I won the Easter Scotland Road Race Championships. I won a race down in Harrogate, beating Dave Rayner, uh, who'd beat me a, a junior uh, nationals. And I think I won about twelve races in a row and got selected for the Commonwealth Games. And that was an experience in itself. I can remember going to the the Manx International. And in the New Zealanders and a lot of them were kind of prepping for the for the big day in Edinburgh. And uh, I just I just didn't have that that strength that they had. I was only eighteen, and I didn't have the the strength of a you know a kind of young twenty year old. Yeah, um, yeah. Especially when it went over a hundred miles, and I can still remember going to the the Commonwealth Games. It was a great experience. You know, I didn't have to travel far because you know I'm brought up in, in Paisley, which is Glasgow, and it's only forty five minute car ride through to, to Edinburgh. So I didn't get the big experience of you know traveling, but it was a home uh, Commonwealth oh, Games. Nice. Yeah, yeah and I, amazing. 
and I can still remember the the feeling because I'd, I'd never experienced anything like this. You, you know, first first big games, you know, I'd done a lot of kind of top races. But when you walk into the stadium, the last team and, and the host team and at Meadowbank Stadium, I, I can't remember how many there, but seeing everybody just going absolutely mental, seeing all the Scottish flags and it just made made us all proud. We're there in our kilts and that kind of made it for me. And then we got to the road race, which could have been, couldn't have been the worst design course that I've ever ridden. It was up and down a Joe Carriageway, a bypass. Really? Yeah. It, and it was like crosswind up, crosswind down, a couple of drags. Yeah. But, the th- but the thing is, there was, there was no hiding place. It was a, a really kind of brutal day. Started yeah. at eight, eight o'clock in the morning. And I can remember it was just kind of savage the, the whole way. Paul Curran won it and he deserved to. He's, he's He was one of the, the best riders I ever raced against um, at amateur level. And I got in the breakaway, but I just went pop and the last kind of lap and, and finished just outside. I think about thirteenth or something like that. Unlucky for some, um, and that was that was my kind of christening sort of thing. That that year was a big year. Okay, I was winning um, some races, but up against the some of the more international riders, it was it was difficult. But I always wanted more, and I went to the Commonwealth Games again in 1990 uh, in New Zealand, and I was there to win a medal. And uh, there was four of us. Went down the road, two New Zealanders and a Canadian and, and myself. And unfortunately, I crashed. I crashed quite badly. They'd resurfaced the road and they'd left kind of lumps of tar on it. And it was a days of it was a days of just normal bar tape. It wasn't like the kind of cork and more grippy stuff that you got now. And so with the sweaty conditions, I I hit a bump, uh, a lump of tar in the road, uh, crashed, and the other three went on to take the medals. So that was that was that was kind of really kind of disappointing for me because I think yeah. yeah before then I think there was only one. Scottish medalist, uh, and that was Brian Temple uh, in the ten mile. Uh, there was there was no there was no road medals, no nothing. So we'd been fourth in the team time trial, the Scottish team. Um, so I really wanted to to win a, a a medal, and I think I was I was capable of doing that. And even when I that year, I was told that by the British selectors that if I won a certain race, which was up in the north called the Vox Grand Prix, I'd go to the World Championships. So I won the race with my my mum there, uh, you know, supporting me and I never got selected. So when I why, why do you think that was, Brian? I don't know. I really don't know. I, I I was doing enough to to get selected even for the World Championships. And I can remember when I at the Commonwealth Games, I was speaking to Eddie Alexander, and I told him I'm going to turn pro. And he said to me, "Why? Why? Why are you going to turn pro when you've got the the Olympics coming up in Barcelona '92?" And I said, "I've got no chance of getting selected. For some reason, they've not selected me for the for the for the amateur worlds because it was different. It was the amateur worlds and um, the elite." or the professional worlds, now you've got under 23 and uh, elite. So I just wasn't in the eye of the selectors. I don't know. I went to, in 88 and 89, I went to ACBB, which is a, a kind of apprenticeship team in in Paris, where yeah. the likes of Robert Miller, there, yep, right? Robert Miller, Stephen Roach, Sean Yates, Phil Anderson, a lot of top riders went there and they learned, that was their apprenticeship, they learned, and, and Peugeot were one of the sponsors and a lot of them turned professional for Peugeot. But when I went there, it was there was no big sponsor and it was very difficult to, to pass pro. I think in that year there was only two or three riders that passed pro in France because it was in a, it was a bit in the, in the doldrums. Uh, when it came to trying to get in some of the French teams, um, I think that two of the riders actually went to Stevens' team Carrera and only okay. only lasted pro for I think one year, and that was it for them. So it was it was difficult time. So I thought I saw Dave Rayner turn for for Buckler, and I was I was kind of beating him. So I thought right, I'll come back, do something in the, in the domestic scene. 
and GoPro uh, there. And that's what I did. I came back, rode for Great Britain in a few races. I won a stage of the Loire Share, beating the French champion. And, you know, won a, a good few races, went into the milk race, got a little bit of a stomach bug early on. And I thought to myself, well, it's going to be very hard to win a stage. So what I'll try and do is try and impress the uh, the Banana Falcon team who were kind of dominant in the race yeah. at the time. So I impressed them enough. That um, and I got to know Shane Sutton, and afterwards they allowed me to to guess with them in 1990 at the end of the year. Impressed them again, and you know I even had a, a conversation with um, Keith Lambert, who was the team manager at the time, only about uh, three or four weeks ago. And you know we're just reminiscing about a few things, and even he said to me when when he signed me, there was a lot of questions thrown out there by by some of the other professional managers and riders. Why are they signing me? And he just said. Well, yeah. What are those questions? That, that, that's confusing, given what you then went on to do. What what were the questions at the time? Was it just the fact that not many people were coming down from Scotland and, and, and racing? Or what, what was the... Maybe they didn't think I was I was good enough. And, and and he never told me at the time, but, you know, he um, Shane had recognised something, Keith had recognised something, and he just said that to me that when, I, when he signed me as a professional rider to one of the best i would say arguably the best team at the time um in the domestic scene he got a few questions why were they signing me when there's there's possible other riders out there but he he just turned around and said he did you know he recognized the talent and that, that's what I, that's what i've learned from you know i've learned from keith lambert i've learned from shane yeah. in the past and uh, and it's not all about when you're building a team it's not all about picking the, the riders that are, are winning the races all the time. And, you know, although I won quite a few races, there was some, some good riders still out there. But, you know, and there was a few of them knocking at the door of um, the Team Banana. But I got the nod. And at the end of the day, Shane, um, um, Keith said to me that, you know, I prove everybody wrong because in my first year I won the, um, the National Pro title. And that, it it also, I had to have the form because I never got selected for the milk race, which was ironic. I'd ridden the milk race for one of the GB teams for the last few years, but because there was only six riders allowed in the team and I was the eighth rider and the newest rider on the banana team, I never got selected. But I just it just made me that more determined to, to make sure I was training hard. And, you know, I, I always, if I found out somebody was doing this and training and that and training, I would I would just try and train harder. And that's what I did every year. And, you know, I went to the, the Nationals at Newport. And, you know, I thought that some of the, the, the questions uh, that was asked of me, I was being used as kind of a bit of cannon fodder. But it worked out in the end, uh, and I won the race. And luckily, my my twin sister was there to to see me see me do it. So that that, that was good times, and that gave me the confidence because the year before in the nationals, um, the amateur nationals, I'd finished sixth. And Shane came up to me. It was in Dudley, and Shane came up to me and said, "You should have won that." And I went, "I know, but I just wasn't confident enough." And I don't know if that's something that it comes from. I don't know. I don't know why I wasn't confident because after that, after I gained that confidence, I couldn't believe that I wasn't confident. And maybe in my work in, in television now, I analyze a lot. And I think maybe back then I was analyzing too much. Overthinking things. Yeah. Yeah. Overthink yeah. Instead of just brute strengthening ignorance. And, you know, there's, there's a few riders out there, I would say, just don't think about it. Just go and do it. One of them. It was a rider called. I'm very confident. Whereas I think you're probably more on the shyer side. Is it? Is that? Yeah, I'm quite. Yeah, I'm quite quiet. Although when when I say that to people, people are a wee bit kind of surprised by it. I just, you know, I don't mind my own company. I'm not, although I work in TV and I can do the studio stuff and I do commentary stuff and I can stand up in front of people and motivate them and and talk to them. Away from that, I'm I'm just quite, you know, I'm not, uh, I would say in a group of people, I'm not the kind of dominant male. I'll just sit back and 
and relax and enjoy. I'm a people watcher. But yeah, there's, there's races that I've won and lost. Um, again, I should have, you know, regrets where I should have maybe just attacked and went for it. And, you know, the Nationals was one of them. Should have won that race and I didn't. And that gave me a little bit of confidence. Nobody had really kind of said to me, you could have won that. You should have won that. This is what you should do. And I think both Keith and Shane helped me enough that year to give me that confidence, which then, you know, I went on in my career the next year in the Nationals. I was second to, to Sean Yates and then second again to Malcolm Elliott. I got it back in 94, which was a big year for me. And I just had that fixation for the for the National jersey that it kind of stood out because my ambition, even at that stage, was to, to turn pro. And um, although you were pro at, at the domestic scene, I wanted to go to Europe. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, and the way to get to Europe was to be noticed and having a national jersey on your back and the points that went with it helped a little bit. And yeah, it was. I think every year I was just striving to get better and better and better. And, and luckily, um, I was able to do that. But I was quite lucky that I got on the team with Keith and, and Shane and they really kind of helped me with, uh, with confidence. And there's a lot of stuff that I learned in these years that I help it help me when I'm building teams and trying to motivate uh, riders even even now. Yeah, it's funny. I can imagine on you know a lot of your attributes from a personal level that help you as a team manager and we'll come on to your team management bit in a bit in terms of being a people watcher and and, and sort of understanding what makes people work. They must be really useful in a management role. But in an, in a very alpha elite male in, environment in the 90s coming through that must have been quite hard for you when everyone else was very brash and that must have been what made you a very good manager must have been quite difficult as a racer well i think the the difficulties i've got to now um i was speaking to kenny pride uh, an author and um, cycling journalist a few weeks ago as well i think he's looking at writing a book on the 1994 giro d'italia and he was talking to me about a lot of different things what my memories were and you know he's got some evidence apparently that shows you know high hemocrite levels with you know a lot of certain riders and you know although i was competing and doing well at domestic level when i was when i went to europe and even in some of the the races that started the year when i was there even because i was riding for motorola and 18 riders and all of them were, were good riders you know lance was world champion a lot was expected of this team and now i was going to races and helping lance try to help him and i'm still gold and he only got i think a, a top 10 performance there and i think the the pressure was on there but i think looking at the giro d'italia uh and looking at that era in, in the 90s there was a, a lot of abuse apparently of of epo because i thought that I was developing and I could compete and I'd, I'd won the first race of um, the year in Europe for Motorola. I'd went to the Giro d'Italia and, you know, I was thinking, trying to get up there on a stage, uh, try and possibly win a stage. And But when I got there, it was just it was just a case of survival and hanging on. And one of the, the jobs that I was taking on to Motorola to do was to look after Andy Hampston. And Andy was a previous winner in Giro uh, that year, 94. He got 10th. Yeah, um, right, yeah. But I think cr- across the whole team, we weren't we weren't competing. Uh, we were just we were in the the numbers and the mix and, and getting results, but not not winning. And I think there was a lot of that uh, came down to 
you know, this new kind of wonder drug that everybody was using. And, and yeah. you know, and what you- was the sense at the time, Brian? I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, right? And I think it was a definitive moment in cycling history. But when you were in it, in the mix, going from town to town, week to week, race to race, were there murmurings? Did you have an inkling that something was going on? Or you look back now and it's a lot more obvious? Well, how do you look back on that time? Because it changed your career in some regards, right? Yeah, I- I, I, maybe I was a little bit more naive, but I can remember when I crashed in the, the Tour of Britain um, in Ambleside, we were all racing, and I was there to try and win the Tour of Britain. I was national champion, and I crashed and I landed in a wall, and a big piece of kind of slate went into a vein in my arm, and I, I lost quite a lot of blood. They had to put a tourniquet on to get me to the finish, and after that, uh, I went to Italy, and I was getting kind of looked after by the, the team doctor in Como, and, you know, my my blood count was low and I had to, you know, try and recover uh, and, and get it up. And I went to see him and there was a, a father and a son came out before I went in to see him. And, you know, Max just said to me, do you know what that is? And I went, no, got a clue. He says, that's EPO. This is the uh, a junior team that the, the father came in. His son rode for a junior team, uh, was given this product to use. Aye. That's how widely used it was. And I'd never... <laughs> You know, Motorola team in 94, there was none of that. I never saw any of it. They weren't taking anything at all. And it's included? Pardon? That's, so this was pre-Lance This doping? was 94, yep, 94. Yeah. No, I saw nothing, absolutely nothing, um, you know, and there was nobody getting any anything at all. And I think it's like people say think that Glasgow's a really rough town and everybody fights and things like that and you know there's high crime and people getting killed and I, I never saw anything because and I say to people if you want a fight in Glasgow you'll get it 100% right if you're looking for it you'll get it, look for uh, it yeah if you're not looking for it you don't see anything you think you see a beautiful city and that's what I see and if you want drugs in the uh, in the peloton you can get it because you open your eyes you talk to the right people and you know you you you'll be able to get it. I went there and I'd, I'd promised uh, my father that, because uh, there was kind of rumours before that people would take this and people would take that. So I'd, I'd said to my, my, my dad and I promised him that I wouldn't take anything. And then in the 90s, we were hearing about some Dutch riders passing away in their sleep and things like that. And it was it was, it was was scary. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything. You know, Lance, towards the end of the, the, the year, when I was in Italy, he was living in Como. So when I was over getting looked after by the doctor, he was riding his world's jersey on. I was British champions jersey. We were riding around Lake Como and he could just turn around and, and just conversation and said, what do you think, Brian? What, what should we do? Should we, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And I said, no, not for me. I says, I promised my dad that I, I wouldn't get involved with any of this. I'm just going to, just try and persevere and and um, you know train as hard as I can and you know I got a bit of a, an eating disorder because um, I became bulimic at one point because that's how strict I was in my training and my diet that because I it was difficult to compete with these riders that were on this kind of wonder drug at the time it was you had to do it in training and that's why that's heartbreaking Brian I mean I think you know, you mentioned earlier just how hard you trained and, and, and clearly you were very disciplined and you got the steely de- determination behind the eyes. But to work that hard to the point that you've made yourself unwell and then realise that people were sort of taking shortcuts. Do you ever get angry? Um, I, I tend not to, to look back too much. Um, you know, it's nice when, when Bradley Wiggins says to you that, you know, Brian, 
in a different era. You'd have written the Tour de France. You'd have written for a kind of Team Sky. You would have been. You'd have had better results. The yeah. the riders in the, in the know recognised talent and recognised what we had to do. And it's the, the the biggest thing for for me is I've got two young sons and they're going to learn about sports. They're going to grow up and there's going to come a time where the question is, Dad, you used to be a professional bike rider. It says, did you take drugs? And I can turn around and look at them in the eye and say, no. And and, and that's the, the, the bit that I'm thankful of. So longer term. Yeah. And also, you know, you, you kept your word to your father, which is... Yeah, well, that's a big. Um, he was the, he was my rock, and yeah. you know that's that's one of my motivational factors. But you know, there's, there's sometimes you know, I start to think, well, if I had been in a different team, if I had been uh, working with, because you got to remember, we were hearing stories that there was um, there was people being given stuff and they didn't know about it. You know, really? we were hearing all sorts of these rumours that they didn't know At about the time, it. There wasn't technically a test for it either, so it no. wasn't really. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we didn't know about these things. And, yeah. um, you know, there was rumors that, you know, people were getting sick because they were taking it and because they didn't know they were taking it. And, and you know, you didn't know what to believe. To, to be honest with you, it was just, it was just scary. But then you look at you look at some of the riders that were around in that era and the results they got and you know what they've they've done in cycling and you know they've done well for themselves. Would they have done well being clean? Maybe not. But look, you, you can lose God, a lot of sleep over forever, this. Right? Yeah, you can lose a lot of sleep over this. You can learn, yeah. uh, move on. I had a, a clean career. I rode yeah. the whole way through the Giro. Though all of my nine years, I rode it completely clean on bread and water. I even yeah. tell people this now, and they can't believe it that you know i was riding i was competing i was winning races you know i was doing well and yeah. in 94 when when bersin the 30th year ever right yeah when bersin won the giro and it's 22 stages 21 days no know, rest days yeah no rest days at all it was absolutely brutal <laughs> the race and i finished it i thought there was there was riders determined to finish i know because they told me and they couldn't because it was just a savage year in the Giro d'Italia yeah. but the thing is I think that most sports people maybe they get tempted but I think if you were taking any performance enhancing drugs it's it's a shortcut for training you know I thought yeah. that I could train harder than anybody else and, and compete with them they just became lazy they never trained as hard and you know they thought the easiest way was to take a performance enhancing drug this i mean i think quite often these things are, are painted painted in the mainstream media as being a black or white decision i think it's incredibly complicated and it's never as simple as uh, as it's made out but i don't want to speak about lance too much but i'd be keen to get your views just on on him as an athlete pre-doping then i mean his work ethic and his natural ability what what, what was he like I had no problems with Lance. I still don't have any problems with Lance. Um, if I phone up, he still takes my calls. He was definitely a, a, a different character. I would say when he was on the team with us, although he's world champion, he was a few years younger. And the Americans, it was like they were the kids of the team. Although he's a world champion, they were the kind of kids of the team. We were, I was a wee bit maturer. And then I had um, Phil Anderson and um, Sean Yates, kind of my senior. But at the table, you know, with their baseball caps on, they were different. They were different from, from the other European riders. And they were really kind of bold, brash. And, you know, just, I think just being American, although it's a huge it's a huge country but there's definitely when when Lance came into a room he'd, he'd command respect at the dinner table you know it was kind of centered around him but 
I never competed against that because I was quite happy. Just you know, just sit doing my job, getting on with what oh, I had yeah. to do. I, I wasn't wasn't involved with that. Even training camps, we'd go and play a game at golf. We'd do things differently. We'd we'd toss yeah, a, yeah. A, a a baseball in the car park at one of the, the the hotels and training camps and things like that. That we would do different. That I would think, is this right? Should we be doing this? But that's what they did, and uh, they, they were a wee bit different. So I had no problems with the Lancet. I never get bullied. I felt a wee bit aggrieved maybe in Amstel Gold that year because I'd looked after him the most. Um, yeah. He didn't get the result he wanted, and yeah. he never thanked me for it. Um, uh, but that's just him. He, he was world champion. He was seen a, 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 a Dutch and, girl. And an athlete, I mean, was he a supreme athlete? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. he worked very hard. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was he was he was a good athlete. I think he's maybe his body uh, makeup changed after he had the cancer, um, yeah. and he lost a, a quite a bit of muscle because in his early years he was quite stocky, he was quite muscular. Yeah. And triathlon I, background, wasn't he? Yeah, and then I can yeah. remember seeing him afterwards, and he was he, he, his body shape had changed with um, you know less muscle, um, bit skinnier, and but he was always he was always determined. He was always brash, up for a laugh, determined. I, I never, never had any problems with him. Yeah. Cool. And and just one more question on him. I mean, in terms of his seven, should he have an asterisk next to his name rather than having them stripped from him? What are, what are your views on that? Yeah, he. The, a lot of people say this. He was a kind of um, kind of scapegoat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I can see that because you know you look back in history. You know, you go. How far do you go back? Yeah, you know, exactly. You, That's what I mean. It's just inconsistent, right? Yeah. So Lance is the the line in the sand. That's it. It's the line in the sand, and you know, he, what what was Jan Ulrich doing? Uh, you know, he's 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 comp- his fierce competitor. What was the other riders um, doing? What were the other teams doing? I don't believe it for once. If you're competitive in that period of time in the, in the Tour de France, it, it's not on bread and water. So. Yeah, Lance is the line in the sand, and I think there should be the asterisks, as you said. This is where you know we we try to clean up the the sport, and even now, uh, you hear people EPO still creeps in. People are still trying to to cheat, and I just think even during lockdown, I think a couple of it's just idiotic, idiotic. Yeah. But that's the pressures. Um, you start to demand the the uh, the big money, and you have to deliver. So it's. It's a cutthroat business. A lot of pressure on a lot of the teams in that now, and I'm I'm glad on that performance right with such short term contracts proving yourself. It's it's everyone knows that cycling from a financial perspective is is in a difficult time. You know you can you can that's why I said earlier it's rarely as black and white as mainstream media make it out to be. You can understand the pressures in some regard. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's pleasing to me that although I was in a, a very kind of tough era in the nineties, and then. Yeah. I kind of fell out of love with cycling a little bit uh, when I retired. I came back into it. But even in my team management days with um, MTN Quebec, yeah. we won a stage in 2015 with Steve Cummings at the... My favourite stage. Yeah, <laughs> in, in on Mandela Day. And we won it in 2015. I know 100% that all the teams I've worked with are completely clean. Because I would, I would never, and I think it's testament that none of the riders that I've worked with in any teams have tested positive. So you know, even from the team, the teams that I worked with with Endura Racing, when I merged NetApp and Endura together, that became Bora. From Cervelo Test Team before that to you know MTM Quebec to Dimension Data, there's not been any rider that has 
that I've been involved with. Because and 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 it's and it's nice when you when you go to the tour and they're competitive and you know winning a stage and getting close in other stages that you think, well, maybe the maybe cycling is cleaner now because yeah, I know what it's like to go there highly trained and be hanging on and not being yeah. competitive and then yet again 20 years later after i've been to to a grand tour we're competitive as clean so that's that's my testament because people yeah. said people said to me is cycling clean now i can categorically say i think it is a lot cleaner yeah. there, there, there is a maybe a small minority out there but it is clean because in my era being a clean athlete was very difficult to compete Absolutely. Yeah. I remember I had um, Chris McNamara on the podcast. I'm sure you've come across Chris. And yes. he was telling me in his, in his prime, he was going over to Belgium to race Comestas and just, just getting killed. And I think last year he podiumed um, in, in his early 40s. So that yeah. was his uh, that was his example. But yeah, it's interesting. So just going back to, to 94, because I was thinking earlier, a lot of people listening to this will, will know you as a broadcaster, so probably won't know about your <laughs> sort of as much about your 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 racing background and then your management's background as well. So you had the conversation with with Lance on Lake Como, and that do you think that had something to do with with the, your time at Motorola or potentially coming to an end, or how did things move on from there? Well, it was only kind of one year contract, and I think um, it maybe didn't help, but I, I think also what didn't help was it became the kind of Lance's team. Um, oh, did it? Yeah. Lance Lance wanted changes, although. Yeah. I'd been on a different program. I'd been uh, there to to support Andy Hampston, which I did. Yeah, and Andy. Yeah, Andy left that year, did he? At the end of '94. Yeah, didn't he? he went to Benesto. Yes, yeah. I I, you know, I remember keeping contact with him and saying to him, "You know, I help, I've helped you all year. We've had a good relationship. Um, can you help me even with Benesto?" Um, but you know, he was struggling to find a decent enough contract just for himself. Really? Uh, yeah. And I think I'd helped Lance enough. But maybe I don't know what the deciding factor was, but maybe that conversation around Lake Como that didn't help. I, I don't know. Yeah. The 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 thing is, I I never kind of really look back at that. I think I could. There's another good few years left in me um, to race at that level. Okay, maybe I wouldn't have won much, but what I did for a for a team, um, and I think it, it was recognised that I was a a good uh, team support rider. You know, to me, it wasn't all about winning some writers are they have to kind of win something or they lose confidence me you know i'd kind of learned that i'd do my job i'd get confidence i was doing something that i loved yeah. and and then i got the call that you know a couple of weeks after that conversation that i wouldn't be kept on and i can remember henny kuiper you know shouting at the team management saying that you you can't do this he's national champion he's, he's finished his first grand tour and you know winning the first race in europe for you guys and you know you have to show respect so you know i think henny had respect for me i think getting my first year under my belt at that level would uh progress me up with the uh you know the kind of background of racing that i have because sometimes and, and i'm glad they've got a couple of years for the youngsters because it's, sometimes it can take a year or two to build strength to get yeah, to that get level yeah yeah yeah, yeah of getting that kind of race speed and you know that level so i only get one crack at it and you know that was it It was back down so then i decided that i always wanted to go to the olympics olympics were in 96 a couple of years afterwards that i'd maybe look at the states uh and that's what i did so i went to the united states for a couple of years um yeah got to the olympics uh in 96 right yep um we went there 
there was only five riders, uh, Chris Boardman, Malcolm Elliott, John Tanner, Max Shandri, and myself. Um, so I helped Max. Chris Boardman decided just to do the time trial, not ride the road race. Um, so that kind of limited the number. So I helped Max and uh, punctured in the race. Um, There's only two service cars and I just punctured at the wrong time when the race was split into pieces. And I, I went from the front group to the back group and was already about three minutes down when I got the... Um, the the change so yeah, I so we were kind of disappointed that time but by that time I'd done quite a lot of work for Max and he got third and you know which is a good result uh, for for the GB team and and then he asked me if I wanted to go to the World Championships to support him as well but he then decided not to do the World Championships and I declined the invitation because it was at the end of the year and the World Championships were in my early days I, I wanted to go to the World Championships but as a pro unless you can compete or have someone in the team that you can help yeah, then it's you know why would you go just to ride round I'd already finished it I rode it in 92 and um, I think I had about three domestic crits everything else that I did was in training and uh, I managed to finish uh, 45th in the World Championships, beating one of my idols, uh, Sean Kelly. So I'd already finished the World, so there was nothing else to prove. So unless you were going there to, to compete or help someone else win, then I decided that um, to do all that training, to go out there just to ride round, just really wasn't worth it. Yeah. So when did you finish up racing? What year was that? I finished in uh, 99. Um, okay. I decided I lost my father in 96 in, in the, the, at the end of the year. And, you know, looking back at that now, that, that kind of changed me. And I, I never became the, the same rider, although I was still competing and still kind of winning races and things. Uh, I wasn't really at the same level and I decided to retire. And once I decided to retire, because I, what I wasn't doing is I wasn't going to ride for for nothing or peanuts. And yeah. the uh, the British scene, there there wasn't much. There wasn't much left. Uh, there was no money. Um, trying to get a contract in some of the, the pro teams. And, you know, I know that when I was talking to, to TVM on the back of, because um, Robert Miller had been there, a uh, few riders that I knew were there, speaking to TVM and the team management just said to me, why should they pay me when they can get two Dutch riders to ride for the jersey in their back? And um, wow. I couldn't argue with it. I couldn't, the, you know, there was no minimum wage. There was no nothing. So I just decided that, where were where where am I going to be in four years' time? It says if I if I if I ride for very little, I can still win races and make very little money. But in four years' time, I wouldn't have progressed. Yeah. So so why don't I stop and try something else, and do something yeah. else? Try and look at a different career, and that's what I did. Uh, I went into sales, um, set up my own kind of sales team, hitting targets, doing well with that, and so away from cycling completely. You, yep. Do you think you just fell out of love with it and needed a break from it a little bit? Um, I think I had to, to mourn my dad more than anything. And I, I never, I was so engulfed with cycling at, at that time. I needed a complete break. Yeah. Um, I still kind of watched it from afar, but I set up in, in, in Scotland. As soon as you stop racing and, and competing and you're forgotten about very, very quickly. And I, I just went out there into the kind of wilderness um, set up a, my, in sales and used my, that determination that I had in cycling, set up a sales job, just knocking on doors i can remember doing it for the first time i thought i can't do this uh, and in fact i got offered the job and i declined it and then i went back two weeks later because i liked the person that would that kind of took me out and trained me and i was doing nothing else so i went out there and i um tried it and didn't like it 
particularly cycling, but I knew it was a vehicle to, to get me to where I had to be. And within about nine months, I'd, I'd become an assistant manager. Within 14 months, I became a manager um, and set up my own company and had about 50 sales staff wow. uh, working for me. It was just determination. It was just growing. And then I get my first part of uh, sickness that I've I, I, normally I was quite healthy. I got ulcerative colitis, um, which kind of laid me low for a bit. And so I decided that um, that I'd come down to to London. I did a wee bit of work with Endura at the London Bike Show. Uh, met up with some of the Eurosport commentators, and they said to me, "You'd be good at Euro. You'd be good at commentary." And I thought, "You having a laugh?" They said, "No. Why don't you try it?" So I got that kind of thought into my head. So a lot of a lot of riders these days think when they retire. They're entitled to go into a commentary box. Well, you're not. It's you're, you're judged now by going into it. Luckily, I I got asked to do it, so I had a, a a wee bit of learning to do. And you know, I've been doing commentary for 14 years now. So there's a lot of people try it, and it's harder than they think. It's not just about sitting there and answering questions. That's an interview. Um. So I uh, I managed to gets the ear of Eurosport and at the time there was a, a an internet company called cycling.tv so I did a, quite a lot of commentary work started to enjoy it and fell in love with um, cycling again that's brilliant I love that and you, you took your uh, your work ethic and steely determination into being as good as you can be on, on the broadcasting side and exactly as I mentioned earlier you're probably well you're very well known for for that you know for around the world really well, I, I I work as hard in, in commentary as I do uh, throughout my, my professional cycling career. I do my homework. I, like, I've not... <laughs> a lot of the stars, like Sean Kelly, you know, he was one of my... You know, he, he was... I would, and I, I say this to his face, he was one of my idols. You know, I look at Sean and, and think, how on earth could you be the best cyclist in the world? Um you know, he's, he's just a human being like like me. You know, what 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 makes him different? Um, so, I we we've got a really good friendship now, and I've not done anywhere near what Sean has done. Uh, but Sean initially came into the Eurosport team because of what he'd done in the bike, yeah. but Sean soon became a very good commentator. Yeah. So. You know, he had that kind of learning curve. Other people have tried and never done that. So I was the same. There's a lot of things I learned from um, my kind of professional cycling career. A lot of things I learned from the kind of three years I was in sales. Yes. You know, yeah. standing up, talking, um, you know, motivating, all this sort of stuff. And then I, I developed, learned how, how to do things in the, the commentary box. But what I learned was... Um, because I didn't have the big Palmares or the big results, I had to do bring something to the table. And what I bring to the table is possibly rider recognition because I do my homework. I, you know, I watch cycling all the time. And it's just, you, you cannot come into a commentary box just with a start sheet. And some, believe, some people have done it and some people still do it. You get found out. It's all about homework, homework, homework and spending the time. And that's what, that's what, 
I did. Preparation. I think your Palmeiras is pretty decent, to be honest. But <laughs> um, yeah, and well, also, compared to Sean Kelly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, to bet, to, and then there's a, your third career. You, you obviously had some very happy days in the team management side of things. That came through the Endura side initially, wasn't it? And then Endura net up, and then on to no. MTM it started before that. Started before that. I oh, um, did it. Yeah, it, um, I got invited by CSC um, to the uh, Tour de France and Alpe d'Huez, and CSC were on the fringe of winning that year's tour with uh, Carlos Astra. Yeah. So I went along and, uh, you know, done the hospitality stuff and, you know, he's given a bike, never went there with any clothing. Given clothing, we did a, a small lap and climbed up Alpe d'Huez and sat there and drank, you know, beers and wine and things like that. And and then I, I couldn't help notice that one of the, the main bike sponsor was not at the CSC hotel. They were, had their own gig, which we went there for the race. They were right next to the race with about two kilometers to go. I had a barbecue and things. So I got to know Gerard Truman and Phil White. Um, yeah. So the next day, the they asked to meet me. Um, I was standing there in the car park and they said, they told me that they were going to build their own team and they wanted me to help them. And I was like, okay then, I can do that. You know, I've I've never done it in my life before, but I thought, well, I thought that about sales. I, I think if, if I hadn't had done the sales job, I wouldn't be as confident in building a team. But I knew that if I could build a team in sales to go out there in Glasgow in the pissing rain, cold yeah. winter months to sell products, yeah. then I can build a cycling team. Yeah. So so I just thought I can do that. So it was only a few days until um, Paris. So I went out, um, used my contacts. Um, luckily, I think it's, I think you can burn bridges in cycling. And I think throughout my, my career, everybody I met, I've been courteous to no matter what. And, you know, my, my phone book is always, you know, I had some really good contacts and I was quite lucky that way. So I just started making a few phone calls. A couple of the stages I, I went along to, especially the time trial stage and started talking to a few riders Um, started to gain interest. And then I had a meeting in Paris and then they, they, we sat down. So I told them what I thought and they just shook my hand and told me they've already signed uh, Carla Sastra. I had to then go away and sign the rest of the riders and staff. And so for the, uh, and my, and that year was 2008. Right. Yeah. Because I know that because I had a baby in March. Ah. So okay. there, there was I, well, I never had the baby, my, uh, my partner did. And there was I sitting uh, in my house on the phone, talking to riders, talking to uh, rider agents, feeding the baby in my lap. And there was days where I would just have my loungewear on from morning to night because to, to build a team, you know, especially at that time, most of the top riders have already gone because they've, they've signed at the Tour de France. So I had... <laughs> about four or six weeks maximum to build a team. And the, the, the what I learned, especially through this my kind of sales job and things like that, I wanted to talk to everybody. That's That was essential for me. I had to talk to everybody because what I learned from sales was I could tell in the first few minutes if someone was interested or not. But some people would go and speak to that person and they'd speak to 10 minutes for the person just to go, not interested. They're just being courteous. So it was about judging people and, 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 and you know, judging people quickly. So from from 
what I learned in sales. And I tell everybody that, that retires from cycling, go away for a couple of years and learn. It's a big, bad world out there. Go and learn something else and then come back. And that, luckily, I had that opportunity that I could I could learn from my my sales, uh, working with you know what motivates salespeople. And they're just people in the end. And so I went out there and spoke to a lot of riders. I had kind of my hit list. I drew it up, um, spoke to riders' agents. And they were a wee bit, not shocked, but they were like, well, why do you need to talk to the person? I said, well, you know, it's, it's not just a, a menu you give me. I want to yeah, talk to the exactly. person. I want to you see how the they dynamics are. Right. You need to, yeah, exactly. Figure out their motivations and... And at that at that time, some of the agents out there were, were sharks. They were just interested in making money. And it's, it's, I don't think it's about getting a rider in any team. It has The team has to fit together. And so I started building um, the team and it was starting to come together. And I can remember um, meeting in, because one of the big targets was Tor Hushoff. And okay, yeah. I can remember sitting in Zurich um and he what he was what he was demanding money wise we just couldn't afford it because uh it would have put us over budget um so we were talking to uh, a nutrition sponsor at the time so we made the call to the nutrition sponsor to to try and confirm that and once we got the the, the confirmation of that we uh, made an offer to tor and he decided to take that and i remember tor phoning me that night and uh, thanking me for all the hard work and, and bringing them to the team and, and, and believing in them. And Tor Hushoff is still a, a good friend today. I, I, I would say that most of the people that I've signed um, are still good friends today um, because I promised what I deliver. Uh, I built the team. I promised them, you know, this and that. And, um, you know, I delivered on it. And I think it's not about about being greedy. Every person I've worked with, even when it came to TMTN Quebec days, that... Um, because I don't like doing bonus systems. And it was the same with the the, the sales. When you go out there, you, you're as a team. It's not an individual bonus. You're working yeah, as exactly. a team. Yeah. And why should the, the winners get the bonus? So, yeah. you know, I don't mind giving a team a bonus, but I got that with Motorola, where we were told that all the prize money was split. Then all of a sudden, some of the Americans and, and Lance and that went over to do the Triple Crown, and they didn't want that split. They wanted to keep that to themselves and split it between that side of the team. And I just thought, it's, it's just not unfair. And I don't like that. And it just brings animosity into a team. Um, so, so I trust don't, that either. Yeah, I don't, I don't like bonuses at all. If you do well and win big races, the bonus for me is, if you've got a two-year contract or a one-year contract, I'll rip it up and do another one for you for yeah. more money. Um, yeah. Because what, what I... I do. When I look after that budget, I've got that budget for the year. If you start inputting in budgets, budgets, and I spoke to another team manager about that, that he'd done a bonus system and he paid out almost a million in one wow. year, almost a million. That can cripple a team. Yeah, if of it's not in, if it's not in the budget. So why have a million sat there just in case you use it? Just in case you're not. You know, I want I want to use that budget to to enhance the team so i've got a budget each year so i know what i can spend each year so if someone comes up to me and, and does the results and i'll say i'll rip up that contract renegotiate for the further year and put them on more money for the for the subsequent years yeah yeah and that that seemed to work um they seemed to like it and i was true to my word and i think one of my kind of biggest signings although i think you know all of my signings are, are, are good but one of the biggest signings is probably when i signed mark cavendish and you know the year before in 2015 
I think he won one stage of the tour. Um, he was riding for a quick step. Um, you could see that I could see that he wasn't overly happy, and you know he'd ridden for Sky before that. And I just thought, right, he's we need to get him back. And you know, I worked with him at the start of the year in Australia. We took him out there, and yeah, you know, I can remember. You know, I grew up. Uh, I spent about ten years Nailerman, and Mark grew up there, and. You know, I think the first pair of carbon wheels Mark Cavendish got was was an old pair of wheels from me. Um, really? Yeah. So, um, so I, I'd always kind of got on well with Mark, and you know, there there was always that wee bit of kind of synergy there. So when I when I propositioned him about joining the team in Turkey in 2015, he was like a wee bit kind of startled. He said, "Are you serious?" And I said, "Well, one, we have to work a way of, of paying you, but why not? Why not?" So and. You know, he came back. He, he went back to the tour. The goal was always to to win the first stage, take his first yellow jersey, um, because he'd he'd failed to do that in Harrogate when he crashed. So take take the first stage and um, you know win multiple stages. And again, it's all it all comes down to to belief, and that that's something that I think what I've learned. If we take it right back to Shane and and Keith Lambert, what they did for me gave me that belief, that confidence. That's what I I use all the time, and because. You know, I'll get people coming up to me in the NetApp days, uh, the MTN days, saying there's nobody told us we could win this race. Really? And I'm like, what? Nobody could tell you you could win. They they just go out there and do your best. Uh, you know, it's we can win this. We can do this. And you know, I I, I was uh, always always a believer. Always a believer. And yeah. you know, and, and it comes from the top. If your management um, believes in it, then you. You'll go out yeah. there and do it. That's half the battle. I yeah. learned a lot. I learned a lot coming from Scotland, where in a, in my younger years, even coming down to to England, where many of the journalists didn't travel to Scotland, so we never get race reports. So the cycling magazines were full of all the English races. So you read yeah. read the magazines, read how good these English riders were. You came down from Scotland thinking that you're going to get beat up, and you actually beat them. So you cannot. You can learn to have a certain amount of confidence that you can come from some of these smaller countries like Rwanda, Eritrea, and things like that, and, and compete with the best. Yeah. Yeah. And that I, I would go out there and um, just support them. And I think one skill that I learned from team management is okay, you've got a team, a, a team of riders, but you cannot treat them all of them the same because they're all individuals. Yes, yeah. some of them need to kick up the backside. Some of them need. Um, a hug and you have to learn what which is which and so you build a relationship and with these guys and support them every that's step real of the skill. way yeah that's a real skill it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people and i'm sure it doesn't come naturally in a, an elite sporting environment as well it doesn't would, would come you... easy the the one thing and i keep on going back to this the sales stuff i had a sales team and to to motivate the sales team i'll stand in front of them and motivate them but sometimes they would have trouble at home or trouble here and 50 sales, uh, male male and female sales um, group, you're having to treat them individually, sit down with them afterwards, encourage them, nurture them. And it's the same with cycling yeah. teams. It's yeah. You have to, everybody is the same. I like to see everybody dressed the same and treated the same and things like that. And everybody comes to the table, no um, mobile phones at the table, no baseball hats, and one common language. You have to speak English at the table because if you cannot do that for an hour, there's no point. You cannot do it in a race because yeah, the, yeah. the communication, when there's a lot of um, stress and sh- sh- 
in a race situation, you have to be able to communicate with each other. So that that's that's one hour a day where you have to be on time unless you've got a massage and respect everybody and come together and communicate with each other. And yeah. there's a lot of things that I learn from um, sales teams and individuals and pushing them out there in all weathers. It's the same with cyclists, that you have to learn whether to kick them up the backside or put your arm around them um, yeah. and, and, and tell them. Tell them that, yeah. that what they can do and believe in them. And the other one thing that I would I would put into this mold is admit when you've made a mistake and yeah. I don't have any problems, but put my hands in the air and said I was wrong. Yeah, again, but, builds trust, doesn't it? It's that transparency. It does. But I think a, a, a lot of it, I would sit down in the tour in 2015. We went in there with a plan. The plan was to, to hold a, a leader's jersey, whether it was... Um, green jersey, yellow jersey, king of the mountains jersey, white jersey. We went in there to, to hold a leader's jersey. Yeah. And we even went there. I commissioned, this was our first Tour de France, first African team. And I'm proud of that fact. I commissioned Met, our, our sponsor, to to send us over some helmets. Green, yellow, polka dot, white. Yeah, love not it. Many, not many teams would be considering that. But yeah. as soon, soon as the riders saw these helmets, what did they think? We can do it. Yeah. So yeah, brilliant. I'd done it for for that 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 reason, and so I'd go in there with a plan. Every day was meticulous, and even when we we were lobbying ASO at the start of the year, ASO biggest event organisers in cycling. Initially, they wanted nine black African riders, and I said, no, that's not possible. I said, we're not going to the tour as the the Jamaican bobsleigh team. We're not a story. We're a team. We're going to compete. And the best way for the African riders to, to learn is from uh, exactly. riders that have already done it. So they're sharing a room. So Daniel Tekle Hamanot shares a room with Steve Cummings or, or Edvard Bolson Hagen. And you, you put these guys together because when you wake up and you're having breakfast with that rider and you're having dinner with a rider and you're racing with that rider and that rider's winning or doing well, you think to yourself, he's only. He's only human. He's he's only human. Yeah, exactly. same, as, same as me. I can do exactly. But we're yeah. training. We're training. We've got the same trainer on the team. We're doing everything. We're doing everything together. Yeah, um, he's brushing his teeth. You know, yeah. it's all very normal, right? Yeah. Why Why can't he's He's not that elite. You know, you don't have him. Oh, he's special. Put him in the single room and look after him, giving everything. They're just normal people. And so they learn off it. And I said that we're, we've got gold. Um, would like to to lead one of the competitions, and uh, one of our biggest goals is we'd want we want to win a stage. And they looked at us as if we were aliens. Yeah. And he said, "Do you know there's there's French teams that come to this race that haven't won a stage in ten years?" Yeah. And I says, "I'm not talking about French teams. I'm talking about this team, this first African team that will come. Our goal is to win a stage." And I was always a believer because as you go as a as an invited team you're always expected to get in the breakaways. So I would have a wee bit of fun. And I know the riders expected this. I would have a wee bit of fun in the morning to give away free pass. You know, who wants a free pass? And a free pass, and there was nine in the team at that time. So the free pass was, you can do what you want in the race. You can sit in the bunch, do whatever you don't have a job to do. Because and every stage, I would determine who was doing bottles. And nobody was, nobody, um, was allowed not to. Gone are the days where you get this, you know, some riders wouldn't do any bottle duties. So yeah. in particular stages, 
certain two riders were designated to do bottle duties. So I would have it all uh, mapped out where two riders bottle duties, two or possibly three riders, that's their day to try and get in the break. Um, I'd maybe give it one free pass or two free passes. So every day we had a plan. And I remember walking into one of the kind of long stages, flat stages, and and I know how the riders think because I've kind of been there. Not at Tour de France, but I've been there. So I just said, look, no free passes today. No free passes. And their, 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 um, their faces just kind of, they were looking at me. And I says, I'm giving you all a day off. And and they looked they looked at me and they were all like confused. And I says, look, I don't want anybody getting in the breakaway today. Anybody wasting energy. You can do what you want. Just stay in the bunch, stay out of trouble and just get through this day. And you should have seen all their, their faces. They were just smiling because I know that in other teams, if you're a, a, an invited team, a smaller team, you have to get in the breakaway. Yeah. It's, it's a must. And I just said, no, get a day off today. I'm going to save your energy for other days. And even when the days in the tour, because it's, sometimes it's difficult to get in the break. I know that in the, the uh, I think it was the, I forget the name of it. The, the the climb that finished on, but the 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 goal was to get Louis Menkes in the breakaway. Yeah, and I'm watching the radio and things. Like that. I can hear Boston Hagen, Boston Hagen, Menkes. What had happened was, um, and I didn't know it at the time, but Louis had missed the breakaway because Louis is so small and he's not very good at keeping position at the front of the peloton. And and that's what a lot of these riders find it difficult. The, the climbers, when it's full on, full gas, it's all yeah. the kind of classic type riders that are, are, are bossing away. And it's very difficult for a, a tiny wee guy climber to get in the breakaway. But we needed him in there. And so next minute we heard Boston Hagen, Menkes. Louis had missed the breakaway. Uh, Ed Valder got him on the wheel and was uh, took him halfway across the gap, pushed him, into the breakaway and then sat up and went back to the peloton. But we'd got our goal. And this is what I'm saying about everybody had their goal to do. Yeah. yeah. And Edvard's goal was to make sure that got him in Louis there. got him in the break. And he did it. And yeah. to have a rider like that help you get in the breakaway. Help. How do yeah. you think Louis felt? Yeah. Louis. Yeah, yeah. He's not going to want to let him down now, is he? No, of course he's not. Of yeah. course he's not. Even in that Mandela day in yeah. 2015, I said, look, Two riders in the breakaway, Reinhard, Jansi van Rensburg and Steve Cummings. That's it. Do what you can. Keep them near the front. But two of them, Jans, um, uh, Reiner went down in a crash. So it left to Steve. And then Steve eventually got in the breakaway and I announced the numbers. If we get 24 riders in the breakaway, we get Steve in there. And everybody was like, whoop, whoop. Yeah, go, Steve. Go. Most other teams would be getting, get on the front and chase. We've only got one rider there. Yeah. We had our rider or one of two potential but we had a chance of winning and that's the chance we were going to go with and it was Mandela Day and and I know that some teams would have thought 1 in 24 on Mandela Day it's a special day and I think maybe some of the other teams looked at us and thought well they can chase because that's a massive day for them they've only got one rider there we thought no that's the plan That and it's amazing when you think that this is although it was Mandela Day and with special helmets on and everybody knew with the pressure was on us today. One rider, and that one rider who'd been saving himself, and it was difficult to hold Steve back. But that one rider, that was 
the, the main goal. And that's what we did. And everybody was so happy that we got Steve in that breakaway today. And how he finished Great. that off was amazing. Oh, it's unbelievable. I, I was very lucky to have him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And he, he shared his memories of it. Um, including me asking him, you know, why was he on the front going into the last couple of corners? But where where were you watching it? I think it must be even harder for the management at times. Where were you watching it? Were you in the car? Where were you listening? Talk us through how that felt. Well, I've I've not got too much of an ego. Um, I'm their support. I think the whole way through the Tour de France, I did about two or three interviews because people are coming up to me and asking for interviews. And I said, there's my sports directors. Go and talk to them. That's it. Go and talk to them. Uh, it's not about it's not Brian Smith's team. This is MTN Quebec, and you're you're talking about tactics and and other people. Go and talk to the sports directors. Um, I was calling the shots, of course, um, in the in the race car. But what I did was we had a plan where we had a team car one, team car two, um, and what I decided that that day was I was going to stay back and send team car two forward. And it's quite normal that team car one. Is a, is the uh, car that stays with the the main peloton and Team Car Two goes up and 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 um, looks after the breakaway. Sometimes yeah. that changes depending on you know how how we feel at the time and yeah. how we want to best support. But I thought this was a big day, and I thought I didn't want to pull rank. I didn't want to say right, I'll go up, uh, leave everybody behind, and Team Car Two will look after the rest. So I sent Team Car Two up there, and all I said to Team Car Two was just give them technical stuff. Do not encourage them. Because that's one thing that Steve doesn't like. He doesn't like people saying, come on, Steve, move up, do this. All he oh, wants really? to know, yeah, all he wants to know is details. the technical nature, yeah. the details. That's it. Yeah. So I yeah, think, I, cool. I think um, the radio was fairly silent for the rest of the stage because I think the, the sports directors in car two were a wee bit frightened to, to say anything uh, because I'd, I'd told them just technical, don't encourage, don't encourage. Uh, so how does it work? Are you also, uh, do you, are you watching the race as well on uh, when you're in the car or do you have com- live commentary on? How, how do you keep abreast of what was happening at the pointy end? See, when you're, you, you're really in the, near the pointy part of the race, right in the action, the TVs don't tend to work. And in fact, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the times I'll be communicating with Team Car 2 because Team Car 2 is... So you've got the first 22 t- two team cars and you've got commissaire cars and various... So you've got about 30 cars behind the, the peloton. And then you've got another 30 cars behind all in order. So when you're a little bit towards the back of the bubble, you can get TV pictures. But yeah. when you're right in the middle of the bubble you don't really see anything it's too much interference and so i'd be communicating with uh team car two because we kind of radio communication because they could see pictures and they could tell me what was happening more um because we weren't really getting it the technology kind of really wasn't there and we're getting too much interference so that was one of the main reasons why i decided that it's probably better i try and stay back maybe try and get a better signal but throughout most of the tour stages uh, in the years you could really get too much of a a, a a signal if you got it it was a bonus so you're just listening to radio more than anything and that's one thing that radio tour is good at they tell you absolutely everything yeah. um but in that breakaway um there was a lot of climbers like um uran and pinot and bardet uh yates was also there um so, so i'm thinking to myself well Thibaut Pino is, is confident because he had his team, he was riding for Francais de Jeu at the time, and he had 
two or three teammates with him. So they seem to be uh, dictating the pace. And what there was a climb just before the last climb. And what we decided at the start of the day was possibly for Steve to go to go long and not leave it until the last climb because the last climb never really suited him. Yeah. So it was to to maybe have a look at things, but the the pace and the tempo that Francie the you were setting. It just wasn't possible. So when I seen this happening, I just I got the communication up there was just to wait, just to wait, save all his energy, wait because there's no point trying. Because if Steve went off the front, Francie the Jew riders would just bring him back, and that'd be a wasted effort. So just wait, wait, wait. Um, there's a wee bit technical run in towards. Um, so I just told them to communicate. You know, traffic islands. You know, sharp bends, all that sort of stuff. And I can remember that um, we went on to the climb and I said, well, there's nothing much we can do. Um, we just have to listen for, for race radio. And when we hit the climb, all I could hear was uh, Pinot Bardet and the riders that were getting dropped. Not one mention of Steve Cummings. So what I gathered from that was Pinot and Bardet was in the front and Steve, Steve was somewhere in between, but not dropped, not passed, because what that red card does, the riders that are being dropped, it will pass. So of 24 riders, you're hearing this rider dropped, this rider lashé. So you hear, we never heard anything from Steve. Steve couldn't have disappeared. So where is he? And you don't know what's happening right in, in and made no pictures. So... I'm like, oh, and and we just sat there. Although we are on the climb, we're seeing nothing. We're hearing nothing. And all of a sudden, the, the race crackled. And, I, and, you know, a lot of times when I think about it, I just went through a wee emotion there. Um, every time I think about it, it it's, it's hard for me not to, not to shed a tear. Because yeah. it, was, it was so emotional, so yeah. we sat there having having nothing, radio silence, just listening to Radio Tour, grabbing a hold of really? everything he's saying. Pinot, Bardet, Devon at the front, no mention of Steve, and we're we're just going up there, and and we're right next to um, Serge Powell's because Serge Powell's was the forgotten Belgium during that tour, and he finished thirteenth overall. So we're encouraging Serge to keep on going, keep on going, keep trying hard, try and stay, keep his good position in the overall. Yeah. And then and then we heard um Steve Cummings uh, Cummings as six sec- seconds, six seconds. And I was like, woof. Uh, I and I went on to the, the radio straight away and I, and I was just like, come on Steve. And you know, I'd already told the, the, the team card, do not encourage Steve. But the emotion just took over and I was like, come on Steve, come on Steve, you can get them, get them before the top. And I was just like, all of a sudden, the, and I was trying to get pictures to see what was happening. All of a sudden, the pictures came back as we got up towards the top of the climb. The pictures came back, and I just said to the car, stop, stop, pull over, pull over. We've got pictures. And it was just as uh, we saw Pino and Bardet, they were looking at each other. Yeah. And then I saw Steve. We saw Steve in the background, and I just I went on to race radar. I just went Steve straight past, straight past. Irrelevant if if he heard me or not, because I know Steve had his own plan, and that was his plan. He just didn't want to mess around because I could see in the television that Pino and Bardi were they were rivals. They were looking at each other and, buggers, yeah. and playing around. And I went Steve straight past, straight past. So 
he came up to about and he passed him through about a kilometer to go. Yeah. And and he took it from the front. And I know that Pino is not good at going round corners. So I just said, Steve, full gas round this right hander. There's a right hander and a left hander. I said, right, no messing around, just straight past, full gas, full gas, full gas the whole way. And when he came out that last that last left hand corner, he had about two bike lengths. And I knew there's a long way to the finish. But those two bike lengths in Steve in that aerial top position, Steve's power at that point on a flat, slightly uphill against two climbers, they're going to have to really battle to get by him because he's so aero, he's so powerful. And for those two small climbers to have that amount of power to come past, and I'm like going full gas all the way, Steve, all the way, full gas, full gas, the whole way up the finishing straight. And then I stopped with about um, maybe about 100 metres to go. And I was just watching, we're just watching, watching. And next minute from behind the mechanic put his arms around me yeah, in the front and just said, we did it boss. We've done it. We've done it. Wow. And and I was like, straight on it, straight on it. Cause I, all I was doing was that long finishing straight. All I was waiting for, for him, he put his hands up. When you put your hands up most you of the time, it. anyway, you know, you've won. Right. And I was yeah. just waiting, waiting. Look, everybody watches that said they knew when Steve caught them, he was going to win. It's never a given. And I just wanted to see him throw his hands up bef- before I could celebrate. That that hun- last 100 metres where I was just waiting, waiting, felt like 10 minutes. Just waiting. waiting. Yeah. And Amazing. Then when, yeah, when the, the arms came round from the mechanic behind, it was just pff, high fives, jumping straight onto the radio. We won, we won, we won. And then I never saw Steve. The, we get taken off the team cars and... I have to say, total respect for every team. Every sports director came up to us. Every wow. sports director came up to us, shook her hand, congratulated us, everyone. It was, I think everybody had realised what we'd just done. Yeah, it's, um, I said to Stephen, we had him on, it's, it's just one of those stages that, I know I'm a Brit and he's a Brit, but I think it, that doesn't, I think it sticks in everyone's, memory because there was so much going on with the gc as well it was just a hectic stage and it was just such an exciting finish yeah but um, even when we were sitting in the car trying to encourage Serge pals and you know he wanted to do it you know stay up there in the overall um we were still you know we we're still looking at the team competition as well something i don't know where that came from there's something in my head uh even on the tour malay stage where i tried to push a couple of riders um by giving them encouragement i told them that it wasn't a competition we were looking at, but it was something that we just have at the back of our minds. And we moved up right up to second place behind Movistar at one yeah. stage in the tour. And, and then they marked us out of it the next day. We eventually slipped to fifth place in the team competition. But even that was, was we were so close to taking into gap. We were so close. If it wasn't for Serge Powers puncturing and the breakaway uh, towards the finish, I think we could have taken the, the team competition that day. We wouldn't have won it, but we'd have taken it that day. Uh, that would have been a great honour but yeah get, I never saw Steve I was by the car by the time he'd done his podium um, all the UCI stuff we we then set up a car on the finishing line to take him uh, once he'd come out and you know Steve's a friend of mine he's, he is a good friend of mine and as soon as I saw him um, and he's probably one of my easiest signings I've ever done because I think it was done within a few minutes you know I just phoned him up want to join the team that was it I'll send the contract over done dusted agreed um, so he was probably the easiest contract I've ever done. Uh, no hesitation. 
And yeah, so I'm congratulated on got him in the car and he was still his head was spinning. It was just like he was he was in a daydream. Um got on the phone to um uh, Nikki's wife and you know things were slowly getting back to we got an escort off the off the climb. Um things were slowly getting back to kind of normal. There was just me, um one of the sports directors and Steve in the car. And then we got back to the hotel and out front of the hotel, everybody was there. All the journalists, everybody was there. There was team staff and Steve, Steve turned around and he says, I need a pee. I need a pee. And, you know, the, he knew if we'd stopped, everybody would want a, you know, a piece of him. So I said, right, just drive, keep drive past the hotel. So we <laughs> drove past the hotel and they, all, they were all looking at us. What are they doing? So we pulled up about 200 metres past the hotel so that he could just go in a, a bush. And they all came running towards us and I came out of the car and I'm going, no, no, he's he's having a natural, we'll be back, we'll be back. So he did his pee, got him back in the, you know, the life, the life of a, a tour stage winner. And then we came back, we came back to the hotel and then he, he done his thing. And then that evening, um, we, everybody had dinner together. It was very important. It was the same when Daniel Tekla Hermanot uh, took the, the, the polka dot jersey. Yeah. Um, it was important that all the team together. So I just said, look, for the first, for the second time this year's Tour de France, everybody has to be at dinner because the mechanics are normally working as swannies are massaging legs. So everybody at dinner for the second time. And so um, that evening, I just said a few words to everybody, thanked everybody. It was um, it was a really special moment. And, you know, it wasn't one of the, the best hotels because we were a small team, but yeah, it's it's really really good memories um, of that year, and and I know that we're talking about Steve, um, but everybody contributed towards that. That was just a, a special day and a special tour. And even when I talk about these things, Steve and Serge Powell's and these guys, they all say that there was a, that was a very very special tour for everybody in that team. Good memories. Would would you do management again? I would. The thing about management was. was which I've learned a lot, um, and I think we've talked about it through sales and being a pro myself. And I know I've worked with um, events as well with the Tour of Britain, and I worked with other events, so I know my way around events. So I've got experience, and I know how things work. And um, with my experience now, I'd like to to work with a team. I, I really love my where I am with Eurosport. Yeah. I love my role, the kind of coach, what I do in the studio with all the. And Brad and doing the comms and things like that. I love all that. So Great it's very, well, di- right? yeah, it's it's very difficult to to fit a kind of team management. And I don't want to become a sports director, but definitely I would look at maybe consulting with a team. What I do like is, and I met Marcel Kittel uh, recently. He's he's becoming a, a, a brand ambassador with Enduro, which I am. It's the first okay. time I, I'd, I'd met him a few times, but never really got to know him. And I really got to know him. I was asked, I was doing an interview with him the next stage, in the next day. Um, and I was asked to, to go and talk to him for five minutes. That five minutes turned into over an hour. We got on really well. I said to him, I'd love to work with you and helped you. And it's it's one of these things that I, I look at riders that are probably not, not punching um, uh, where they should be, and it's these type of teams, teams that are struggling. Teams, you know, I don't want to work with. Although I think I could work with, I don't want to work with an NAS or you know, possibly you know some of the top teams uh, in the world. I want to to work with teams that maybe need a bit of help, support, yeah. and I think that's where I come in. I, I I 
like to become a problem solver. Um, yeah, I was going to say may, maybe a team that's hit a bit of a cultural rut and needs yeah. a bit of some fresh ideas and just a bit of yeah. care and your sort of emotional intelligence. Dare I say it? I think. Yeah, um, it's just I, I think I, I'm pretty good at pulling people together and sorting out problems. And you know, I've managed to do. You know, Mark Cavendish in 2015 to 2016, he, he was the same person. It was just his mentality. It's how we changed things. It's how we thought of him. It's how we, you know, you hear this all the time, you know, reinvented himself. Well, he, he yeah. didn't. He was just, he was pushing the same numbers, everything. It was just this kind of mental block that he had. And I, I had a laugh with uh, Marcel about it, that in 2016, it wasn't a good time for him because Mark Cavendish, I think, had, had failed to beat on a, a one-on-one basis or one-to-one basis, he'd, he'd failed to beat Marcel Kittel, uh until he won that first stage of the Tour and took that yellow jersey. But everything was geared, everything was went perfect. And some of the times you need that to, to happen, but the confidence Mark got from that meant that he went, he went and beat uh, Marcel another three times and won four nice, stages. It's it? amazing. Uh, and Marcel's a nice guy. Yep, lovely guy. Both of them are great guys. Uh, two very different guys, but it just goes to show you that in, in sprinting, and I, I'm not anywhere near the level of sprinting that these guys are at, but with the amount of television that I I watch and look at, yeah. um, I I can see things. I I see things not with a blinkered approach because too many people just look at their riders and their team. Well, and I analyze everybody together. Um, and there's a few little inputs that I had with probably Mark that maybe helped. Well, I I'm saying they helped. I don't know if they did, but it's very difficult for these sprinters when they're getting told right for the next four or five hours, guys. You're sitting in a peloton and you'll be judged in the last ten seconds. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That's that is pure pressure for the GC contenders. Just finish with a bunch. Don't lose any time. Yeah, the sprinters. There's so little margin for error as well, right? Yep. I mean, milliseconds. It's incredible. Um. I wanted to ask you with, and I know I've taken up a lot of your time, so I'll wrap it up quite quickly. But with regards to, to have you've got quite a unique background in terms of you've been an elite rider, you've, you've done the team management piece, and obviously you, you've seen the sport from the commentary and the broadcasting side as well. Where do you think the sport is? Do you think that the COVID, the lockdown situation is a watershed moment? Do you think we're going to see big changes to the structure of the sport? And what, what's your overview, your general view from that side of things? Well... <laughs> I think this is, is a, this is a great opportunity to to reinvent um, cycling. It, it needs to happen. There are too many powers, and you know these powers are just kind of looking after themselves. Yeah. I think the the teams are have it a little bit more time because believe it or not, as soon as you finish a, a cycling season, there's not a lot of great time between you know finishing one year and and starting to prep for the next year. So now we've got kind of months and months. And I know that Velon represent many of the the top teams. ASO are the big power in the events, uh, UCI, and you know the the governing body. So I cannot see them all getting along together. Uh, and I think the the main problem with the teams is they feel as if they've got absolutely no power at all, and that's why they they, they signed up with uh, with Velon. Yeah. I think it's going to be very difficult for them because. Um, economies aren't that great and we're already finding out that CSC I think will be pulling out um, you know other teams um, not in a good financial way uh, kind of everybody's looking for, for sponsors it's not a great time so I think teams have to, to look at other sports um, maybe look at the, the business model that they've got uh, there's been a lot of talk about business models in cycling and you know the, the revenue how can we get revenue into cycling because you know, apart from track racing, um, maybe cyclocross, nobody 
really kind of pays. You know, no ticket sales, uh, which you've got. So reliant maybe. on sponsorship, isn't it? Yeah. So it's all reliant sponsorship and brand awareness. So I, I have been talking to a few people. I've I've looked at this, and I think cycling teams have to build their own brand. And you know, you you talk to someone away from cycling, and they get so confused because teams can change names every year, and well, they need exactly. a, they need a, they need an identity because. Liverpool's Liverpool, Man United's Man United. They they stay the same. They just have different, you know, sponsors on the front. So I know that's not feasible because they want the brand awareness, they want the title and the name, but they have to create a brand. And that, if that brand becomes investable, or they use this brand to invest in things and and create merchandise because we we know all the time about jump sales of this person and that person and you know they really have to to buy into this and keep it consistent um and start to build their own kind of business instead of just this is what the sponsor's given me this is our budget for this year we'll spend this and then the next year we'll get another budget they have to we're on or we're trying to find more yeah. sponsors i mean even your story about tor hushoff i mean that's that's an incredible story, really. You had to nail down a sponsor before you could sign a rider. I mean, that's nonsensical for a lot of sports. Yeah, or because businesses, generally businesses. Yeah, because at that time with Savello Test team, it's, it's very difficult to have a leader in the classics and a leader in the in the tour. It's very difficult, and, and the budgets weren't that great. Uh, you got to talk about this was Savello's R and D budget. It wasn't uh, a huge big budget, but what what we did with that budget was phenomenal. Uh, and the riders that we got, but yeah, the, the the teams to get to have some sort of power and and you know to to because I think you know jersey sales and they, I don't think they they sell a lot of shorts and jerseys and you know with um, you know brands coming in and everybody wanting either to use uh, Asos and Jura um, Rafa kit and things like that. They go through times where you know it's cool to have trade jerseys. You know, team jerseys. It's then it's not cool to have have them, and you know they change every year. So there needs to be a, some sort of consistency. Um, in my view, the team is a brand. They build. They look at investments. They they turn it into a, a business model, um, and a business model is investable. And they may get brands investing in them because if they do build this brand, because you got to remember that there's there's new brands in the last 10, 15, 20 years have come into cycling that have really built their reputation in my day I, I think i can remember in 1990 we were using the first giant cadexes and giant is a major player now you look yeah, at yeah. some some of the clothing brands that have come in in the recent times so a team can build their own brand build and and people want to invest and it yeah. doesn't have to be just one investor or, or a brand investor that you can have your own brand investors or, or people giving you sponsorships, but you can also have your own uh, investors. And if these investors come in and that brand all of a sudden might be sold down the line to, to another company that wants to own that brand. And yeah, they, they have to look at themselves more than just looking at bringing in sponsorship and they have to look yeah. at themselves it's, as a business. Agreed. It's too one-dimensional, and I think I think it's historically been too focused on you know column inches and newspapers and and television coverage, uh, both important things. But I think the world's moved on in terms of just how powerful social media is now, and 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 the opportunity potential opportunities there for cycling teams and businesses as well. There's a lot of there's a lot, I've got a lot of good ideas about how to to bring in money into a team and what what they should do. Hopefully, I'll be speaking to one team soon that. 
are already kind of thinking about this type of thing, but you have to to build a team or have a sort of business model that people would like to invest in. And I'm not talking about I'm not talking about huge amount of monies, but you, you, if someone wants to invest in this, because you hear this all the time in other businesses that take shares out in this company or that company, it needs to be an investable model and it has to make money. So how do you how do you make money from from a, a cycling team? I know I've got my ideas myself, but you know, it's the same with uh, football teams, you know, ticket sales, various other things. That's where they make their money. So where can a cycling team make money from? And if they get that sorted from and they start to build, because, you know, like a team of Aeneas or a team like um, Deconic Quickstep, what is their fan base? You know, they, you, you can't really put a number on it because you look at Man United and they get, what, 74,000 people. Yeah. Um, Ticket sales, X of shirt sales, and everything else, shirt and, sales, and yeah. season ticket holders. Why yeah. don't you build uh, a season ticket holder type of thing uh, model yeah. with a cycling team where you get a lot of bonuses that no one else can get? Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I there's agree. different there's different tiers of bringing money into a team and and making it something investable. Yeah, got to be more commercial, right? I think teams are probably trying to with. with good people like yourself putting your brains towards it i'm sure we'll see some changes and solutions in the uh, in the coming years we shall see we shall see we shall see look i've got three quick questions for you and then i must let you go but but i wanted to ask you your favorite race or day on the bike as a racer as a manager and in the commentary box okay my favorite day on the bike and i'm going to yeah i'm going to speak about one thing um recently because of the the passing of my mother, um, I went up to Scotland. There's a in my front room. I've got I commissioned a, a painting, and the painting is over the Firth of Clyde, and it shows Aaron and uh, the Ailsa Craig. Uh, and it's very, how do you say it? Um, very moody picture because that's what I remember it as. And recently, I went up, uh, saw my mum in the hospice. She wasn't in a good way, and I said to to my mum. I'm going to ride round the coast. The coast for me, when I was brought up with the Renfrew bunch, including Robert Miller, many uh, top riders, was we'd ride round from Renfrew all the way down the coast till we get to kind of Kilwinning Irvine and then head back in towards kind of Glasgow area. It's about 80 miles. Uh, we used to add on bits, uh, add on climbs, but we'd go round one way on the Saturday and then go the opposite way on the Sunday. So the coast to me was Saturday and Sunday. That was the race we did through the winter, building up Finding base. Weekends. Yeah. And I promised my my mum I'll do it. And I've not done the coast run for many, many years. You're talking about maybe 15, maybe 20 years. I've not been around yeah. the coast. Yeah. So for me, I did it. It was memory lane. And so, and I went round 80 miles. Um, it's not particularly hilly. Uh, I managed to do it in about 19.4 miles an hour. I wasn't even looking at my average speed, uh, which is a decent enough speed for four hours on a bike. But you know what? It was I was full of emotion. Um, I was full of memories. And I think that's what makes a, a special day on the bike. Some people might think that a special day on the bike might come for a, in a race when you win a race. Like, you know, the first British Championship, I was so nervous. But the second British Championship, I won. I took it all in, and that was better. Amazing, um, yeah. Because because I was, was that your I was, favorite racing day, the second British Championship. I would say my second uh, British Championship because I'd won it the first yeah. time, second for two years, and then I won it the second time. But the most important thing is my mum and dad were there. My mum and dad's 
had witnessed their son winning the British Championship. Um, my twin sister had done it the first year, but they went over there. Okay, there was a bit of pressure on me to deliver, um, but having my mum and dad there winning it for the second time. But the second time you win something, you take more of it in because the first time I won it, I didn't have a clue what was happening. Um, I was so serious when I came across the line. Um, I didn't want, know what to do. I was zipping up my top and I was I was so deadpan faced. People said to me, why weren't you smiling? Why are you not showing emotion? I said, because <laughs> I wanted to do everything right. I didn't want to make a mistake. And, you know, I just thought coming up that finishing straight, there's so much pressure on me. They're all clapping. They're all cheering for me. I have to do everything right. And it was, but the second time it was a bit more relaxed. I was on my own again, um, riding for Motorola. My mom and dad were there and that made it a kind of special day. And as for, as a team manager, it has to be um, Mandela Day with, with Steve. Yeah, what a day that was. And then obviously, you, so when when did you do the, you've just done the coast ride? Done the coast ride about uh, three or four weeks ago when I was in Scotland. And it was only a few. Did you have blue skies? No, I, I got absolutely soaked about three times. Um, that seemed apt. I did it. I did it in Scotland. I think it, the average temperature may have been 13, 14 degrees, maybe Maybe that's saying something, but with shorts, short sleeves all the way around and just stop once to, to refuel. But so many memories and it, it didn't matter. I actually did it, um, some Instagram stories as we went round and people followed it the whole way. And there's a lot of people commented on how great it was and that yeah, I had to do it again. But yeah. I had to recover a wee bit afterwards, afterwards. But I, I tell you, because my brother um, asked me, um, because he's still riding, he said, I've respect you, you. To be honest with you, I don't know if it was the emotion and the memories or whatever, but I was some days that you ride the bike, you're on kind of float days. And I used to I used to take the Mickey out of people. No days a float day. I've never won a race in my whole career where I've thought, ah, oh, I'm just floating. Every race that I won, I had to try hard. Bloody and hard I was, work. Yeah. yeah, it's hard work the whole cycling's just hard. Any sport's just hard work. There's no easy days. But that day I felt no pain in my legs at all. No pain. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, I'm 53 now. I probably ride 40, 50 miles. To do 80 miles was a big, it was a bit of a challenge for you. And that's why I said to my mum, I'm going to ride round the coast for you, mum. And I think that motivation can help me round. Next few days, she, she kind of passed away. But it was just the, the memory, the, the, the scenery, when, when it did kind of brighten up a little bit. But yeah. there, there was kind of nothing stopping me. And, you know, where I live in kind of Kent here, I, I go out and I, it's, I'm just exploring. But when I actually, right. yeah, when I ride in Scotland, I've got a memory around every corner. Isn't it so, lovely? It's a great way to finish, actually, just to, to hear that someone who's had such a brilliant race career and done so much in the sport can still find that kind of cathartic joy of just getting out and taking a trip down memory lane on the bike. Well, there's one thing that I, I did do <laughs> when actually she passed in the week afterwards. I just, I came down back home to uh, my family here in Kent and I thought, I've done 80 miles and I've done another 80 miles. Um, what about 100? I've not done 100 since I raced. You're talking about over 20 years ago. So I did my 100 miles and... I that saw that. Hurt you came into Surrey, didn't you? Yeah, I came in to um, Surrey and uh, West Sussex and things like that. That hurt a little bit more, I have to say, but it's, it's a bit lumpier down here than maybe a coast ride. But 100 miles, um, and that was just something that I don't know where it came from. I thought, right, came back here. Yeah. 
I did a couple of days of feeling a wee bit kind of up and down, emotional. And I just thought, right, 100 miles seems a good enough idea. And I just went out there and kind of ticked that box. So, yeah, look, um, I enjoy cycling. Anything over three hours is a bit of a kind of chore, if I, I have to be honest with you. Um, I'm enjoying, you know, swifting. Um, even the other day I went out with... Uh, you know, my partner, Kerry, um, her father is an ex, uh, oh, he's, he was 1972 Munich bronze medalist in team pursuit. Um, wow. Oh, so, it's in the genes then. Blimey. Yeah. So, so she went out, she was going out with her, with her dad. So I thought, right, I'll, I'll take you out because, you know, they ride a, a lot slower than I do. And her dad refuses to ride with me because I ride too fast. So I thought, right, I'll go out with her. I really enjoyed it. So now that, my kids are into their sports um, and, you know, the the other half is, is starting to ride their bike and we're starting to enjoy it more. And look, I'm, most people think it's all about the competitive side of things. I love, I was brought up youth hostel and I was brought up, you know, camping. I was brought up with the outdoors. You know, staycation yeah. to me is just normal. Um, yeah. I love the, I love the great outdoors. And there's something now that I see a lot of riders and that are doing now is putting a, a bag on the back and doing a wee bit of touring. Yeah, and I love this whole bikepacking movement coming in. It's going to be brilliant. Yeah. I definitely and, want to get involved. And one thing that I'd love to do is I'd love to do a wee bit of bothying where um, you can just go and, and in fact, while I'm on this call, Steve Cummings is calling me. So you must know that we're talking about him. Um, it is a burning. Yeah, so I'll just tell him. Steve, I'm on another call. I'll call you back. Okay, I'll phone you soon. Okay, cheers, mate. Right. Um, so I'm keeping that bit in. I'm not editing that out. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, they, they you, you make friends in cycling and, and you stay friends. Um, so you know we kind of keep in contact. But yeah, I love. Um, you know they've they've done up a lot of bothies in Scotland, just getting into the wilderness, uh, roughing it a little bit. I, I like all that. You know, it's, every now and again, it's nice to stay in a, a really nice hotel and things like that. But you know, I'm I've been brought up in the outdoors and and love it. Yeah, very good, excellent. Look, I, I feel that I should let you get back to Steve. Okay, no, I'll give Steve a phone, but I, I've got to go on uh, Swift now. I've got my old Renfrew bunch in about um, half an hour's time, so I need to warm up and, and do a ride with need them. To get so. Into that. Look, thank yeah. you so much for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure um, to speak to you. Stay in touch, won't you? No worries, I will do. Thank you. Cheers, Brian. Thanks a lot. Bye. Cheers, bye. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. And more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.